You are listening to the Lazy Equity Podcast, brought to you by Bobby Hayeri and Darren Venter, founders of the Investors Agency and Debar. With over 20 years' experience in real estate between them and having bought hundreds, if not thousands, of properties around the country, you are in the right place to learn all things property. This podcast is designed to educate and empower everyday Aussies to take control of their future through property. Hey guys, welcome to episode number two of the Lazy Equity Podcast. I'm super excited to have Sam Panetta on the show. Sam Panetta is co-founder of Aureus. We use them, I use them personally. I also trust a lot of our clients to go to them as well. I'll let him touch on who they are and what they do. Sam Panetta also is someone that I looked up to growing the business. Like when I started the business, I was always going to Sam, getting advice, learning from him, not just in the, I guess, the the, the finance space to see what's going on, but also business space as well, because what they've created at Aureus is something that it's given their time back, given their freedom back, and I'll let him touch on that as well for him and Jackson. But it's something that you always sort of look up to as a business owner, and I'm super excited to have him on. Oh, mate, that was the nicest thing anyone ever said to me. <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm super pumped. I'm super excited to, to jump on here today and being the first guest, mate, on the uh, on the Lazy Equity Show. Hey, thank you for coming on. Uh, no pressure from me being the host. I've come on to your, <laughs> I've uh, come on to your uh, podcast before, and uh, as a guest, I don't think there's as much pressure as when you're trying to host. So, uh, so let's see how we go. <laughs> oh, very good, mate. Very good. Mate, why don't, you, uh, why don't you tell all the listeners a bit about yourself, who you are, a bit about Aureus, what you guys do there, and, uh, and, and, and yeah, just, just educate us all on that. Yeah, awesome, mate. Well, as uh, Bobby said, my name's Sam Panetta. I basically strive to be, be two things in life. I try to be a good family man and I try to be a good businessman. So they're the two pursuits that I, that I passionately uh, try to achieve. You know, married with uh, two little girls, my wife, Elise, my, my eldest, Ariana, my, my youngest, Talia. And on the professional side, the, the business side, basically strive to be the best business person and the, and the best investor that I can. And basically that takes the role of the, the Aureus Group, which we co-founded with my business partner, Jackson Milan, a number of years ago, which is basically a holistic financial services business helping you know ambitious Australians achieving their lifestyle and their financial goals uh, and then the investments which are in large parties is in real estate uh, which I know Bobby Bobby loves and I love too so that's a little 15 second spiel about me nice mate and I, I really enjoy what or not I, I enjoy but I think it's really smart what you guys have done at Aureus in a sense that a lot of your clients are all your clients are business owners, is that right? Or not, not anymore? Not all of our clients are business owners, but a lot of our clients are business owners. I think business owners just generally in life have a lot more complexity in their finances than, than people who aren't business owners. Uh, so they, they typically need a lot more guidance and a lot more help along the way in order for them to actually you know reverse engineer what they want to get out of life and how they can make it happen. And, and I guess business owners as well have the ability to potentially scale a lot further than a, a, a PAYG. I mean, PAYG is, is probably a, a lot safer mm. in, in some instances and you have that security. But would I be fair in saying as, as business owners, you have that potential to, to exponentially, uh, exponentially grow? Absolutely, mate. You've hit the nail on the head. When, when you're talking about, you know, salaried employees, there's, you know, there's always scope for people to, uh, you know, climb the corporate ladder, things like that, but that takes time. That's not something that can be done very quickly. And there's bonuses and commissions and stuff like that. So there is some flexibility for PAYG to continue to increase their income over time, but it is a slow burn when compared to a, a business owner. Given a business owner has so many levers that they can pull in their life to, to make more money out of their business, it, is, it's a double-edged sword because they have the ability 
to make better decisions and influence how much money they make. But on the other side of that, they also sometimes get overwhelmed because there's so many decisions that they can make. So they don't make any decisions and they just do the same thing over and over again. However, if they do make the right decisions, it would be not unusual for us to say, you know, business owner earning 200 grand a year to say, do this, this and this and earn 300 grand next year, where it'd be very hard for a PAYG, unless they've got a very large promotion or something like that, to say, okay, go and earn an extra 100 grand this year. So there's the, the there are distinct real economic factors at, at play there. Yeah, okay. And it's, it's really, really cool, like I said, what you guys are doing in a sense that helping predominantly business owners, not all, but predominantly, and then when you get their businesses up to a point where they're creating solid, when their profit margins are quite quite high and, 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 and they're making enough profits, then you help them with their investment side of things. So whether it be property or shares. So it's a, it's a very smart business model where, you, where you're sort of helping the, these, these clients come through the entire journey all the way through to investing their money as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you have to, you have to have that holistic view on it, you know. People love their businesses. Business owners love their businesses, but they need to see it as a vehicle that helps them craft the lifestyle that they want. And if the business in the, is the be-all and end-all, then it becomes reliant on the key person, on the business owner, where things such as real estate that you're involved with, it doesn't matter who owns it. If I own that apartment next door, you own it, it's going to perform just the same. And then that's why we want to get, you know, those profits into real assets such as real estate. Yeah, okay. Cool, mate. Well, well. Yeah, thanks for, like I said, thanks for jumping on. Why don't we touch on before, there's, there's a few quick questions that I wanted to, well, not quick, but there's a few questions that I wanted to touch on today, which I know is the front of everyone's mind in real estate at the moment, in finance. And, and those those questions, are, all those topics are like inflation, interest rates, what's going on in, in, in the economies in, in the States and here. So there's a few different things I wanted to touch on. But before we touch on that, I'd like to get a bit more of an understanding as to or how long has it taken and how did you get to the uh, Aureus to the point where you guys have now? Because I know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you and Jackson have freed up a lot of your time. You're spending a lot of time with your family, which I know is super important as a family man. That's something that I strive towards. Like I, I really think you go into business for two things. One of the reasons is money and the other reason is freedom. Mm. If you're just going to make the money and work 70 hours a week, you might as well go do it for someone else and you don't have the stress mm. of running your own business. If you just want the freedom, then go and be unemployed somewhere. Yeah, and go to the beach and get a team. Exactly. So you go into business for two <clears> things. And from what I can see, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like you guys have gotten Aureus to the – definitely heading to that point mm. where you guys have been able to free up a lot of your time and and, uh, and have that flexibility back. Is that sort of where it is and how long has it taken to sort of get towards where you have? Yeah, it's a really good question. So it is, it's taken us about four years, right? It's taken us about four years of – probably being in the trenches for about three of those years. I would say being in the trenches for about three of those years, which is it's the, the old street fighter mode, mate. It's <laughs> getting up first thing in the morning, going to bed last thing at night, working, working, working to, to establish the foundation of the business. And then there was probably about a year transition period, which was probably more difficult than street fighter mode because you were – work and work and work, but you also had a business that was a big enough size that it needed management. So you were both doing the work and running the business where for those first couple of years, there was a little bit of the business to run, but majority of it's just about busting your ass. And through the transition phase, it's uh, it's both. And we've got it to the point now where the, the basically the operations of the business uh, and the delivery of the business is largely handled by the, by the Aureus team. And, you know, Jackson, myself and the other leaders in the business, making sure that we're doing activity that pushes the need 
needle forward, you know, things that are going to make a large impact to the business. And it's given us not the ability to sit at home and, and do nothing and, and twiddle our thumbs every day. So we, we have no interest in doing that, you know. it's We've spoken about it before. I said to Jackson, I said, I'm a 33-year-old man. I don't want to sit at home and, like, be retired and watch golf. Like, I've got no interest in doing that at all. But what it's given you the capacity to do is focus on really important things in the business that really drive the needle forward. And things like having breakfast with my wife and my daughters every every day, having dinner with my wife and my daughters every day, being available on, on Saturdays and, and Sundays uh, to go do activities and, you know, taking a month or, uh, sorry, a week off every, every couple of months, right? And these are – these seem like pretty normal things that people basically just get uh, in in life. If you're not a business owner, if you're not a business <laughs> owner, when you get it, when that's exactly right. When you're a business owner, the the seven days a week, the 12, 14, 16 hours a day, the sacrifices that you make in your personal life are really pronounced. And some people can stay in that mode, which I, I've coined as street fighter mode. They can stay in that mode forever, go 20 or 30 years. I'm sure everyone listening to this knows a business owner who's 50 years old and hasn't been on a holiday since he was 20. Uh, and it happens, you know, uh, because they become the be all and end all of the business. And that's not what we wanted to build. That's not what we wanted to craft. Uh, so even having that flexibility that I can work a normal eight hour day and, you know, not work on Saturdays and Sundays, that's a massive freedom women. I can. I can go on a holiday for a week or two weeks and not do any work at all and the boat doesn't crash. The boat continues to function. The, the boat continues to go faster, which I think as a business owner is what you want to craft. Yeah, 100%. And for me, one of the big fears when I go away is a self-made fear. It's not necessarily mm. a, a, a reality fear. Like when I go away, I, I think that, well, like this is my previous businesses and, and whenever now I've got a business partner, so it's a bit easier to, mm. to, to go away and, 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 you know, so he'll, Darren will take on more of the load or he'll go away. I'll take on more of the load. But before I had a business business partner, I was always quite concerned. If I go away, will the ship sink? Yeah. Um, it doesn't sink, <clears throat> but you just have this, it's never sunk before when I've gone away. <laughs> uh, things might not happen the way you a hundred percent want them to, but the ship never, like for, for me, thankfully it never, never sunk, but it's just this self-made sort of fear that I built up that if I go away is, is, is the business going to survive? Yeah. And look, it's a real fear, mate. It's a real fear because if you don't have the systems and the processes in the business and the operations of the business, it literally can sink. Like if, if, you know, you're the only person in the business that's doing marketing and sales and then you go away for a month, there's not going to be any marketing or sales that gets done. So it's it's a real fear. It's not a it's not an imagined fear. But here's here's my take on it, here's my challenge when we're talking about that. Let's picture going away for a week, let's picture it as stress testing the business. Right. So picture it as you're doing a you're doing something very good for the business because you're, t- you're stress testing the systems and the people and the team and the operations that you've, that you've built into your business. Now, you go away for a week, ABC works really well, XYZ breaks. So you've, you come back, you come back to your desk on Monday, you've got a checklist, hey, this went really well, you get feedback from everyone in the team, get send out a form, say, hey, what happened this week while I was gone? And then, you know, your team says X, Y, and Z, didn't really go well. You know, they broke. It's There's issues there. What that gives you the ability to do is examine X, Y, and Z, whatever those particular subjects or topics were, yeah. figure out why they broke, and then implement new systems into the business or new team members or whatever you need to that fixes those three issues. And then you, you bust your ass, work, work, work for a couple of months, and then you book in another week away, you go away, and you stress test the business again. 
right? And then if you've done a good job of fixing the problems that happened the first time, they're not going to happen again. They'll be bulletproof and they're not going to break. You're going to get three new issues that break because the, big, <laughs> because the, big, the business is, is bigger now. But if you do that, you imagine doing that over very long periods of time, you know, once a week, every two months for 20 years, you will have a bulletproof business. Yeah. An absolute bulletproof business. And it's very uncomfortable for, as you said, for, for all the owners of businesses out there to do that to their own business. But it's the only way to, to, to just make it like Superman, like invincible. Yeah, no, that's really, really good advice. Um, I was just thinking of the most recent conversation I had with Darren, uh, my business partner, just before he left on, he left on Sunday and we were speaking on Saturday night just by message. And he messaged me and he, he messaged me and he said, should I give you a call tomorrow morning before I jump on a flight? And I was like, do you have anything relevant to say? <laughs> <laughs> And he goes, no, I'm just stressing. <laughs> I go, go enjoy yourself, switch off. We'll, we'll look so after things good. here. So good. Um, so it's just, I was just sort of having a chuckle about that. But with us, we've just changed a few systems over yeah. and there's quite a few changes going on. So that's why he was stressing. But, you know, uh, we've had our breaks before and we've been able to switch off relatively well. So it's, it's been, having a business partner has helped a lot in that regard. Yeah, really, yeah. really big impact. Yeah, 100%. It's, 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 I've always had a business partner. I've got many business partners now, but I started Aureus with a business partner. So I couldn't tell you the impact of not having a business partner and not. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's it's really interesting that you managed, you mentioned that there's that sort of dramatic shift uh, in mindset having a partner. 100%. I think a few things that it does is, first of all, you do have that flexibility. If you do want to go away, you know things can be looked after to the same level mm. or better. Also, you learn so much. I've, you know, you, mm. I've learned so much from Darren. You, le- you learn so much from each other. Uh, you pick up what each other's skills are and better yourself to match those skills. You become more aware of yourself and what mm. you can do differently. So it's, it's helped a lot. It's been great. Awesome. That's great. Mate, let's touch on, um, let's touch on inflation. I know mm. it is, I know it is, I guess, the biggest concern of everyone at the moment, the cost of petrol, the cost of groceries, the cost of uh, literally everything at the moment, uh, the construction costs has gone up 40, 50%. Let's touch on, I guess, your thoughts on it, why it's happening, if some of the listeners, you know, real, real entry level, why it's happening, mm. how it happens, and, and, and I guess what can people do to, to safeguard themselves from future inflation because this will continue to happen, right? This is a really interesting topic, Bobby, and I'm, I'm really happy that you, you brought it up because it is, a, it is a deep economic topic, and I think that most people – general population do not understand enough about inflation and what it means. Inflation and the supply of money is probably the most important economic factor in a capitalist economic system, uh, which is what we have here in Australia and America. Most of the, you know, most of the world has a, has a capitalist system these days. I am going to try explain to it as much as I can in an easy to, to understand manner, but I do know it is a sort of deep, deep economic topic inflation. Yeah. To give you guys a really big overview Inflation is basically the value of money going down in real terms over long periods of time. What I mean by that is that a dollar has purchasing power of a dollar today. If there's 4% inflation in 12 months' time, that dollar in real terms will only be able to buy 96 cents worth of goods and services. Now, it will still look and act like a dollar, but everything else will be on average 4% more expensive. So really it's only got 96 cents worth of purchasing power. 
And when you say 4%, is that because that's what the average inflation increase it's is? It's what it is in Australia at the moment. At the moment. At the moment. Okay. And what's the average? What is it normally sitting at? Well, the Reserve Bank of Australia, their mandate is to have inflation between 2 and 3%. So the Reserve Bank of Australia, they, 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 one of their primary goals is to try continue, is to try have inflation continue at 2 or 3%. Absolutely. So if you have, you don't want hyperinflation. And you don't want deflation because deflation means that the value of everything is going down over time and the value of money becomes worth more and more. They don't want that because picture somewhere like Japan that's had deflation for long periods of time, the prices of real estate, the prices of shares, the wages, they're lower now than they were 20 or 30 years ago. Now, that doesn't make anyone feel wealthy. In reality, it's all the same. It's all relative, but no one feels wealthy where if your income goes up 10% a year, goes up 10 grand, the value of your house goes up a hundred grand, your share portfolio goes up a bit. Everyone feels wealthier than the, than the, the year before. So inflation is really important to have that wealth effect. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, people say Australian real estate's really expensive. Once you factor in inflation, it's slightly outperformed inflation. Do you know what I mean? So a large part of the value of assets being so high is not because the value of assets has gone up an incredible amount. It's because the value of your money has gone down an incredible amount. I think Henry Ford penned it years ago. He said if if the average person knew what inflation was doing to their money, uh, there would be riots in the streets because it's the it's the biggest, most misunderstood thing in in economics that everybody should know and it's only when petrol prices start going through the roof that people start talking about inflation but this has been happening for years in the background the prices of property have been going up there's other things that have been going up we've lived in a in a period for a very long time where there's been little to no inflation and that's why interest rates are basically zero because when inflation's high, they increase interest rates to combat it. Yep. When inflation is low, they decrease interest rates to combat it because they want to keep it in that sweet spot where there's a little bit of inflation, not none, and not too much. Yeah. Okay, cool. And and with, when there is inflation, it should should normally wages be is it, it wage wage growth increase? Is that is that part of inflation as well? Or is it, Absolutely. Or it just doesn't the problem the problem that we're having at the moment is that the wages are not increasing anywhere near the same rate as everything else is that is that sort of what the is that what what's going on at the moment or wages are increasing but they come it it comes towards the back end of the cycle we saw asset prices always go first right if you study any inflationary period it's asset prices that move first they're the first to react real estate and shares and then over time it filters down to other things commodities and goods and services and then it happens in wages we've got a unemployment rate now that's below 4%. It's the lowest it's been in a very, very long time. That is inflationary because it puts pressure on people that are hiring to pay a higher market rate and it puts pressure on the wages of the existing team members because if inflation's 4%, if they don't have an inc- uh, in salary increase of at least 4%, they're actually going backwards. Yeah. You know, it's more pronounced in America where it's 8 9% inflation. If someone Crazy. doesn't have a 10% salary increase, they've gone backwards 10%. Crazy, eh? Um, so it, 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 it is happening and there's always – it's not that this is fair and I'm not defending the – I'm not defending the nature of it and whether it's right or wrong, but there's always going to be people and goods and, and skills that are more in demand and those people will continue to be remunerated at a higher rate uh, and will get – bigger salary increases and other people 
they just won't be. And that's just the nature of, of economic models. Yeah, capitalist economic models, right? Correct, capitalist economic models. And you, right. you touched on this earlier and I wanted to get your thoughts. Admittedly, it's not something that I'm overly um, overly informed on, but it is something that I do have quite a bit of passion, quite a bit of interest on. Mm. Do you have an opinion on 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 sort of what economic model is 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 I guess is best in terms of <laughs> s- socialist or capitalist. So I know there's I pros do. and cons to both, and I know like Jordan Peterson is, is someone that I watch quite a bit on online, and he by all means doesn't say the capitalist society is, is a perfect society, but he does say the other societies have been tried and tested, and they've been far worse. They, so I'd love to hear your thoughts if you have an opinion on that. And they are, and and, and they are historically. Do you know what I mean? Because it it, it turns out that people basically inherently selfish. They care about themselves. So when you try to build a utopian society based on sharing everything, uh, you only need a couple of schoolyard bullies to take. Do you know what I mean? And so it doesn't last. It doesn't last. It, okay. it doesn't last. And and that's that's just that's the human race. There's always going to be someone who wants more. And the reason capitalism has worked is because it literally feeds off that human emotion and says, all right, you want more? Go earn it. And then if you work harder, you build a better business, you buy more properties, you're a better saver, the economic system, capitalism will reward that person um, because that person has added more value to society. And, you know, if you're a builder and you build one house a year, you'll be rewarded X amount. If you're a builder and you're more efficient and you've taken more risk and you build 100 houses a year, then you should be rewarded 100 times more than the first builder that only built one house because not only are you producing 100 houses – they're going to house 100 families and you're going to have endless amounts of suppliers, materials, contractors, labourers, uh, tradesmen that are involved, uh, taxes that are paid. You, the impact you're making to society is substantially larger the more capital that you move around. And that's why that's why the, the capitalist economic system works. Now, I always get in trouble every time I say stuff like this. They get, <laughs> they get, they get turned into little snippets and, like, and, and people tell me I don't know what I'm talking about and they – Tell me I look like a frog and they get they, they, <laughs> they attack me personally. But I'm going to say it anyway. And if you want to have a go at me, just, just have a go at me. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> I'm a big boy. So I don't think that – let's take Australia as an example. It's not, it's not pure capitalism. There's elements of socialism to it. And I quite like that because I think that capitalism is what lifts the lid, pushes the ceiling higher on what a society can achieve collectively. But I also think that you shouldn't leave people behind who may not have the means to operate well within a sort of ruthless capitalist system. So I think you need to have elements of both. And I think somewhere like Australia does have that where we've people in Australia who do really well are well rewarded for it. We have the largest middle class in the world. We have the richest average uh, citizen in the world. And there's a lot of wealth in Australia. People have very good lifestyles. And that's capitalism that's allowed that. And then you've got your outliers that are very, very wealthy, but they make very large impacts to, to society. Get your Harry Triggerboffs, for example, billionaire uh, developer. He's been doing that for 50 years. I don't know how many thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of jobs that that man has created. Deserves to be rewarded because he's made a big impact to, to society. But on the other hand of that, you've got things in Australia like, like Medicare, and you've got the um, you know unemployment benefits, and you've got when COVID hit, there was money that was paid out to people. Now those are not capitalist measures; they're socialist measures. They are using the the wealth of the collective to put a floor underneath those who are struggling and keep them 
keep them above water. So yeah. I really feel that if I had to summarise it, you need capitalism to push societies forward and then you need a little bit of socialist elements to, you know, to protect those that are most vulnerable in society. Okay, yeah, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head. That's a great explanation. I, I, I definitely tend to agree with you as well. You touched on a few things like the risk that people take to – Come to, to perform to a business mm. owner might take to so a lot of people don't think about that risk they just think this business owner has as this person has made it uh, we should be you know they they should be making the same as everyone else but people don't know that this person maybe has worked twelve hours a day fifteen hours a day this person might be a million dollars in debt to get to where he is this person uh, has taken all this risk that the average person may not have uh, and it's only fair that someone gets rewarded for that otherwise where does someone's where do people's motivations and, and, and drive go to keep performing better if they're capped as to how how much they can how much they can benefit, right? Hundred percent. Like why bother? Why achieve anything in life if you're not gonna be rewarded for it? You know, you have to have a that's to be a carrot that's dang good. You know, maybe it's a it's a holiday or a bigger house or a better car or better food or whatever it is, but you need to be rewarded for your efforts. If you're gonna go, you know, sort of balls to the wall to try achieve things in life. You have to re- you have to be rewarded for that. Yeah, hundred percent. But again, like you said, it's super important that those who are less fortunate, whether it be because of lack of education, terrible upbringing, um, they might have been brought up in a in a in a culture which um, which is much harder to to make it in life. So I think it's super important where we have um, steps in place that we can support those kinds of people. And, and Australia is doing that, although you know that might start getting harder and harder as inflation increases. But like with my previous business, the landscaping business. I dealt with. I had. We had about ten staff, and nine of them, pretty much all of them, were mm-hmm. immigrants or they were migrants from South America, from all all over Europe, from Asia, from Middle East, and these guys, these guys were continually saying how amazing Australia mm-hmm. is and how much opportunity there is in this country, and how they can come here and they can, as long as they work hard and they put in forty hours a week. They can afford to go on a holiday at the end of two months or they can afford to take a long weekend. They can go surfing every day if they want to. They can eat just things like eating meat three or four times a week. These are, these are you know, uh, things that, that a lot of people in the other world don't have the, the – are not fortunate enough to do. A lot of other people, they need to work six, seven days a week just to, just to feed their family. But I think it's when you hear these stories from the rest of the world, you realise how fortunate – you know, we are to be in Australia and how good the country it is here. 100%, mate. You've absolutely hit the nail on the head. And, you know, you and I both come from, from immigrant families, so it's something that's been a recurring theme in our in our lives. But not everyone gets to hear those stories. You know, I remember my, my grandfather came here on the leaky boat for three months. He left Italy because there was no food. It's like Crazy. there's no food. Like people don't understand, like, the the, the – drama of that the dramatic effect of there's not literally nothing to eat you know can't um, even imagine that right you can't even imagine that and so when he when he came here and he wanted to work hard and there was all this opportunity having the ability to work really hard and being expected to work really hard is not a bad thing you, you it's a privilege to be able to, to do constructive work and add value to society and i i think the demonizing of hard work these days i really don't like it People have had it too good for too long that they don't know what the opposite of not having any work to do is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, I hundred percent agree with you. I think we're 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 both aligned in 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 sort of that different societies and how they can benefit different aspects. And and yeah, we're super fortunate to be here. Let's touch on let's touch on interest rates as well. So mm-hmm. there's obviously a big concern that that people have at the moment, rightly so. As long as I remember, interest rates have been on the way down. 
and people of our generation only ever know interest rates that are sort of sitting at four, five, three, two percent. Uh, now they're on the way up. We've seen that we've seen the bottom, and 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 I'd love to hear your thoughts as to how high do you think they'll go? How much of an impact has this had previously? If you if you're sort of aware of, of the history of it and how it's affected sort of the economy previously, and let's just touch on that. Cool, mate. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's start with what's what's already happened. Then let's turn that around and use an example of what's happened in the past and let's talk about what's going to happen in the future. I, I think that's a good way to approach it. So what's already happened over the the last couple of years, what we had was we had COVID hit, right? Now, COVID should have demolished the Australian economy. Like real estate should have gone down 50%, right? It should have absolutely crushed Australia. But it didn't because the powers that be stepped in, government stepped in, with stimulus and the Reserve Bank stepped in with the printing of money. And then between those two forces, they plunged all this money into the economy, which in turn is what the whole world done. And that's why we've got inflation now, because there's so much new 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 money in the economy, so much new money supply. And then what they have what happened, interest rates got reduced to practically zero. The powers that be, the regulators made it very easy to borrow money. And then you had the the property prices start booming and you had the, this basically liquid effect in the rest of the in the rest of the economy now this is really important because when a bank lends money they don't if you give a bank ten dollars they it's not that they can lend ten dollars they can go and lend ninety dollars off the back of that it's securitized so every time a bank makes a loan it produces new cash supply in an economy yep. okay and that creates inflation and this is what they want, right? So people, they like it when people borrow, but they don't want people to borrow too much. So they stepped it up, stepped it up. You had these super, super low interest rates that hung around for uh, for sort of 18 months. And then that's now unwinding. Now, a couple of things are happening. Number one, the, 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 the regulators are making it harder for people to borrow, all right? So they do that before they increase interest rates. They've already started doing that, have they? They started doing that last year. They okay. started doing that probably September last year, I'd like to say, they, so about six months ago. Right? And what, what, are, what, what sort of uh, steps did they bring in place to make it harder for? So the first thing is the debt to income ratio, tapping that out at six, right? So basically your household income times it by six, the bank's not going to lend you more than that. The second thing that they done was they increased the servicing rates. So basically if you borrow money at 3%, the servicing rate was two and a half. So they'll put it into the bank's calculators at five and a half. It's now three. So they assess it at six now. Okay. Right, so the interest rates, see, the interest rates hadn't moved, yeah. but those two things had already made it more difficult to, to borrow money. So just touching on that, does that, can you, is it safe for us to assume then people have proven that they have buffers at five and a half and more recently 6% interest rate. Is this how we should be thinking of that? Correct. So if, if interest rates do go up to that point, technically people that have had loans, re- people that have recently taken out their loans have shown that they do have those buffers in place. Is that a safe assumption to make? Correct. So there's, there is always buffers in place. Um, and the Australian banking system and the Australian lending system is actually really strict. It's some of the, one of the strictest in the entire world. It's one of the reasons that we didn't get smashed in the GFC. And it's actually one of the reasons that property prices are really high in Australia because the financial system is so sound. They're not cowboys lending, you know, money with, to anyone with a heartbeat. They've actually very, thoroughly assess things and anyone who's gone for a bank loan in the last little bit would know that it's a bit of a pain in the ass and they, they, they really you know they really assess it but 
whilst annoying, especially for the participants involved, it, it is actually very good for the health of the economy because they're not lending money to people that shouldn't be borrowing money. Yeah. And you shouldn't do that. You know, like I, I've been a finance broker for a very, very long time and I've got quite a lot of debt, but I've always been very conservative in how much people should borrow that you shouldn't over leverage. All right. Uh, it's bad for like household economics to, to have too much debt. Yeah. So when you, when you look at it, like that, and you've got you've, you've got the banks with the regulators slowing down the flow of money, and then now you've got the interest rates going up. Okay, now variable rates haven't gone anywhere. Fixed rates are, they've basically gone up every month since August September last year. They're up 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 because the fixed rates are pricing in the future and saying this is what the interest rates are going to be in the future. Sure. Now. The, the bond markets, which are basically the interest rate markets in Australia, are betting heavily that there's going to be rate rises, right? Basically, everyone's in the same camp there. Now, yep. Some people think they're coming sooner rather than later. Some people think there's going to be more, there's going to be less. And I'm getting back to, to answering the question that you just asked me about what's going to happen in the future. It is impossible to know because what will happen to interest rates in the future will be completely determined by how well the Australian economy is performing and how rampant inflation is. So if they'll test the waters, they don't want to send anyone broke. It's not the job of the Reserve Bank to, who control interest rates to send anyone broke. What they're going to do, they'll do an interest rate rise. They'll see what it does. They'll watch, see what it does to inflation. They'll see what it does to the economy. And then if it needs more, they'll give it more needs more they'll do it more and this is this is their job not to be predictive but be to be reactive based on what's happening uh, and they get criticized a lot for that but they're not punting you know their, their job is to control the levers the mechanisms that run the Australian economy so if inflation continues to go up and the economy continues to do well then interest rates will trend higher and higher and higher now, when that stops, when inflation goes back within its band or below or the economy starts to contract, then they'll have to drop interest rates to help stimulate things. Sure. And we saw this back in 2016, 2017, off the back of the last big property boom that we had. It was the exact same thing. Regulators tightened the screws, they increased the interest rates, and it slowed down the market. And you saw direct correlation between their financial controls and the property market slowing down. Sydney and Melbourne are more pronounced to this stuff because there's more debt in Sydney and Melbourne. We can yep. we can dive into that later, but they're the, the markets that, that get controlled the most by debt measures. But then when they wanted to stimulate the economy, they've done the opposite. They dropped the interest rates, they made it easier to borrow, and they, they flooded the market with money and then property prices started going up again. So people don't realise just how controlled our, our economic system is. And people, if someone's worried about rising inflation and rising interest rates, I think they need to look at, the broader economy will do what it does, but they need to look in sort of their own backyard and say, what can I do to, to defend myself here? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And, and I guess with, and oh yeah, it is, it is hard to, I guess, sort of say where, where we'll, we'll be going, but you touched on a few things that uh, when property prices, did you, so do they slow down historically when interest rates, uh, when interest rates go up, do you see a slowdown or do you see correction or does it depend on how far interest rates go up? It depends on how far interest rates go up. But in economics, the higher interest rates are, the lower an asset is worth. That's like basic 101 economics. So if interest rates continue to go up, asset prices should come down. Yeah. 
All right, but as I said before, that's more pronounced in markets with higher levels of leverage, uh, such as Sydney and Melbourne, because very high property prices, very high levels of debt. Yeah. Uh, so they can control those the property prices there a lot more than they can in in other areas. Yeah. It's yeah. They they, they don't like this year. Property prices already off. You know what I mean? In, yeah. Especially in Sydney and Melbourne, property prices have already come off the boil. You yeah. saw the the really high frothy prices people were paying last year. They can't be achieved now. Yeah. Uh, so there already has been a little bit of correction. So it's if people think that the correction means the end of the absolute world, it's already happened. Like it's <laughs> literally, and everyone's still here. Everyone's still alive. Nothing's changed. But the property prices they've already come off. Yeah. Yeah. I I I, I agree with you for. Sydney and Melbourne. Um, I was having a conversation with one of the agents on the Northern Beaches. Uh, he was saying, as of February, it's become a buyer's market. And as of February, if you want a good deal, chase the agents that haven't tried to sell a property in a – chase in a the agents market. who haven't sold a property in the buyer's market. So there are a lot of new agents out there now yes. who have only sold in the last 10 years in Sydney and Melbourne. And anyone can sell – a monkey could sell a property in, in, in a blue chip area in Sydney and Melbourne, right? This agent was saying, if you want a good deal, just go around to those agents who haven't had that experience or haven't been taught by people that have that experience, mm. and you'll see some good deals because they're not setting the their vendors' expectations correctly. They're not taking an off. They're not advising their uh, vendor to take an offer when they probably should because there's not as many buyers out there. Yeah. It's these ones that don't have that experience. So in Sydney and Melbourne, we've definitely seen that already. In Brisbane, it has started cooling off slightly. We've seen 40, 40% growth, 50% growth. Some of the markets. Very short matter of time. Yeah, 100%. Yes. Some of the markets, when you look at comparable sales, there's been 100% growth in two years when you're looking at comparable sales within Brisbane. Mm. That has started slowing down slightly. We haven't seen a slowdown yet in Perth or Adelaide. And I think that's directly, or regional Queensland. And I think that's directly correlated with what you touched on before, debt levels. Yeah. So the higher the price points are, the more people get spooked by by higher interest rates and the more the market will slow down. So in our markets where we're sort of getting an 8% yield, even if property, even if interest rates go up by 2%, you still got a positively geared property at interest only. So those markets haven't slowed down. It's just a good opportunity to, to get in with a few less buyers because those mum and dad investors are the ones that, that, will, that will freak out a little bit when, yeah. the, when the consumer confidence changes. Yeah, no, I've, got, I've got so many views on this. You touched on so many important things. So, like, last time that we had a – was off the back of the Sydney Olympics, we had an inflationary period in Australia. And Sydney property prices basically got nothing from 2000 to 2008. And Perth property prices crushed it. They were the best-performing property prices in those years for the, basically the best run it's ever had. It was an inflationary environment. A lot of money in Perth is commodity-based. Commodities are a beneficiary of inflation. They go up, there's more money. So I, I think that what you've, hit, what you've said from the east coast of Australia compared to the west coast, I, I think you'll see that play out again here. I really do. The other thing that you touched on was the, the regional markets that you guys are involved in. I picture, picture it like this, right, the stock market. So you, you've got your ASX 200 and then you've got your small cap stocks or your micro caps, your really, really small stocks. Now, with all the big stocks, doesn't matter if it's Rio Tinto or Commonwealth Bank, if the market goes down, they all go down, right? It's just the nature of the of the index of, of stock market investing. But those micro cap stocks and those small stocks, they're running their own race. They're not as closely correlated to the performance of the overall market, and that's what those regional areas that you're involved in are like. They've got their own economies, you know what I mean, that, yeah. do, that, that, are, that are functioning at their own pace, as, as you just mentioned. People, when they talk about property in Australia, they, really they're talking about 
Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane. You know what I mean? That's that's what they're talking about. And a lot of the time it's just Sydney and Melbourne, but yeah. there are a whole ton of, of other different markets and factors that come into play there. Yeah, until I think until two years ago it was just Sydney and Melbourne. Now uh, now Brisbane's come into the play, but there, yeah. there are literally 5,000 different markets around the country. And, and over the last 40 years, not that I – as far as I'm aware, over the last 40 years, there's never been a time except for now where all markets have been booming. Yeah. But also over the last 40 years, there's never been a time that all markets have been correcting or been stagnant. So that sort of tells us if you are a serious property investor, try own one asset in each state or mm. two assets in each state, you'll generally stay under the land tax threshold. So um, because land tax is calculated state to state. And then based on what the last 40 years has done, you're always going to be achieving some sort of equity in your portfolio because there's always been some sort of growth. So if the last five or six years, Sydney and Melbourne stagnate or correct, five, 10% correction, and then stay still for a few years, if you've got an asset in, uh, in, in Perth, then you know, you're still going to be creating that equity. You can get the equity there and then come back to Sydney and Melbourne when that time is right. Absolutely, mate. And I want to, let's let's look at it like this, right? Let's look at it You're like this. Excited. Yeah, because people get scared. People get scared. You've got to you got to flip the mindset on this. So you need to ask yourself: Are you going to be? Let's just stick to property for now. Are you going to be a net buyer or a net seller of real estate over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, whatever? Right? Do you know what I mean what, by net what, buyer no, or what net do you seller? Mean by that? So. If you're a net seller, it means you're going to sell more real estate than you're going to buy. And if you're a net buyer, you're going to buy more real estate than you're going to sell. So you're going to increase the size of your position in real estate. Sure. Okay. Basic economics says, we know that inflation will increase rental returns over time and other factors go into it, but rents will continue to increase over time, right? If you're a net buyer of real estate and the price, not the value, but the price of real estate goes down, it should become a more attractive investment, not a less attractive investment. You know, if, if I could buy real estate at an 8% yield, 14 or 22, it'd be a bloodbath to get to a 22% yield, but it would be a much <laughs> better investment than it was at 8%. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And when you, when you, flipped your mind, you flip your mindset on that, it's great to get some growth, but it's almost exciting when the prices go down because it presents better opportunities to allocate your capital if you're a net buyer, of course. 100%. And if you're, if you're an experienced buyer or you're educated, even if you're not experienced, if you're educated with how the Australian property market has performed, you don't, like I said, you don't need to be experienced, but you need to be educated in mm. that sense and be comfortable with the decision you're making. If you're experienced in that field and you know what's happened over the last three recessions or the three downturns that the market has had, that presents some really good buying opportunities for a very small window of time mm. before the consumer confidence changes and people realise that the world's not falling down and and people realise that that life will still go on mm. and then that's when you see this uh, see this boom again. I, I, the last one I, I remember was when COVID first hit. Mm. There was about a 10, 15% drop in prices within weeks or 99% of buyers left. There were still lots of property on the market. Some people, some other vendors brought their properties on the market because they panicked. And and that was an extremely good window to buy, mm. buy a property. And those that did during that time, in some markets, you've now seen 100% growth since then. Mm. Um, imagine if you sold in a panic when COVID first hit and now you're trying to get back into the market. I saw it when I was on the ground. I saw a few people when I was doing a few deals on the Northern Beaches, people sold at the beginning of COVID 
And six months later, they were trying to get in. Like the lady, I, I spoke to them quite a bit because I'd see them in all the open homes. Told them I was a buyer's agent. They didn't want to use one. But the lady was obviously, um, she, was, she was literally about to cry every time I saw her. That's heartbreaking, you know. And I've seen it so many times, Bobby. I've seen it so many times. And it's, I don't know, like you're, you're not George Soros. Like why do people think that they have this inane ability to time market is – just bewilders me because the property prices should have gone down 50% and then the regulators stepped in and propped it up and pushed it a long way further. Now, no one on earth could have predicted COVID and no one on earth could have predicted that the regulators were going to step in and put a firecracker up this market. (laughs) And these are, these are unknown unknowns, you know? Yeah. And it, it really upsets me when people try to sort of outsmart it because I've seen people try to do it and like, they can't buy here on the northern beaches now. They're tapped out forever. Like yeah. they've got to move somewhere else if they want to own their own home. Yeah. And it's not that they couldn't have done it, but they tried to get a little bit too clever. And investing is not a game where the smartest bloke wins, I tell you. It's more about your – it's probably more about your mannerisms and your character than it is about your IQ and your intelligence. 100%. I, I, I definitely agree with you. You touched on the regulators or the powers that be not going to let the property – didn't let the property market – sort of come crashing down. And I actually did a post about this last week where a lot of people think the property market's going to come crashing down because interest rates are going to rise. Mm. Now, my post mentioned how the regulators that be or the powers that be literally propped up the property market, froze people's rents and froze people's mortgages so the property market doesn't come crashing down. The banks are now not going to increase interest rates at a point where the market comes crashing down. They have access to all this data. They can see the debt levels, where the debt levels are highest. They can see what point people can get to. And like you said, it's a, a reactive thing as opposed to a, what did you sort of mention? It was more of a reactive policy that they do than a, a predictive. Correct. Yes, yeah. that's, that's the exact way I would describe it. Yeah, so 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 these the powers that be, the last thing they want to do is have the market come crashing down. They've just propped it up for two years and pumped billions of dollars into the, billions of dollars into the economy. Now they're just going to slowly increase those rates to a point where there will be some distress sales. There will definitely be some. It's going to be a very small percentage. It's mm. not going to have – I don't think it's going to have a widespread effect on the property market, but there's always going to be in any market, there's always going to be people that have over leveraged, people that have borrowed more than they could, people that unfortunately are going to lose their jobs. Um, that's just the reality of, of life. And I think that will happen moving forward, but not at a rate at which uh, we're going to see distressed sales. And there's a reason why a lot of people say, but it happened in America. Now, I know you have an opinion on this and mm. The difference between sort of America and Australia is we have APRA um, and, and you touched on the independent sort of governing bodies and, and that is APRA. Do you want to touch on, I guess, what they do and, and why the Australian property market is so much more secure than America? <clears throat> Absolutely. There was two massive things that happened in the American real estate market that didn't happen in the Australian real estate market. So they had – their lending was a lot less strict, all right? That was one of the things. So they had these – ninja loans they nicknamed them no income no job applications where you could basically sign off that you can afford the money and you know you could borrow at 105 percent loan to value ratios and borrow a little bit more to buy a jet ski like it sounds it, like a dream yeah it sounds like a dream right <laughs> living living the dream but there was you know it was there's similar loans in australia we have a we have low doc style lending which makes up you know 0.1 percent of loan applications but in america it was climbing to like 20 30 40 percent like a, a a large share of the American real estate market, the, the debt markets yeah. were these really easy to access loans, right? So yeah. that was one big difference that that happened. And the other is the way that 
real estate is securitized in America, in Australia, if you've got a mortgage on one property, two properties, three properties, four properties, and you cook it on property number two, and you've got to sell it. Now, even though you might use four different banks, they can still sell your other properties to get their money back. All right. They sure. can to recoup their costs. That's what happens in Australia. And you can you can try to make it as sexy as you like, but at the end of the day, they, they, the banks are going to get their money back. In America, their policies were different. If you had leveraged up on 10 different pieces of real estate making bets in each different state and one went up 20% and one went down 50%, the one that went down 50%, you could go throw the keys back at the bank and they'd walk away because they now take ownership of the property, they don't chase you for nothing, and that's your other properties are, are safe. And that's why foreclosure rates are so, so much massive, higher. Massive, massive, okay. because if, if I've got a piece of real estate, my debt's 500 grand, but the property's worth 400, my bet didn't work. Here, have the keys back. It's your problem, Mr. Bank. Crazy. Um, we're in Australia if that happens, and I'm 100 grand underwater on one piece of real estate, but I've got a million dollars of equity in another piece of real estate, the bank will say, fine, we'll sell both. We're going to get our money back. Yeah. Um, so those were two massive structural differences in in the Australian and the American real estate markets that caused to be you know the, the damage to be so much larger in America than it was in Australia because it barely done anything in Australia, Jeff. So like the stock market got smashed, but the real estate market really didn't. Not that much. Yeah, and and it was also APRA. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it was also APRA that pretty much tells the banks in terms of the buffers that you were just talking about, Correct. is that APRA which tells the banks that these are the restrictions you need to put in place moving forward? APRA, APRA ASI, the RBA, they all have a say in it. Um, which the states don't have these governing bodies, or they do? Well, they, they all they all control it in a different manner. Do you know what I mean? They all have, have different conversations around it, but it's it's a majority of the banks in Australia have very similar rules. Now, have they, some of them have a couple of little niches that the other ones don't have, but the – the, the ground rules are, are very similar across the across the line. A lot of the major banks, they don't do low-doc loans and things like that. You know, there's smaller banks that do them, yeah. but they're just such a small part of the market. It's like, you know, do you have a deposit, X, Y, Z? Can you service the loan, ABC? If it doesn't, it doesn't work. Like, it's there's no, there's no little tricks to get around that. And with your low-doc loans here, you still need to do 20% deposit. Is that right? Probably even more. I think some of them will do 20%, 30 40%. Yeah. Because so they're not 90 95%, 100% loan. No, no, it doesn't exist. Like it's not a it's not a thing, you know. There's, I was going to say, tell me who they are. I gotta, <laughs> <laughs> I gotta, but they're, more, they're to more expensive as well. They're more expensive as well. Yeah. Um, so you're paying for the privilege of, of having of having that. And there's, you know, there's like private lenders in Australia that will probably lend on 60% LVRs, basically asset lends they're called. So they're – they don't do any income assessment at all. They just lend on the value of the of the property. Yeah. Um, but it's a 60% OVR. They're very highly conservative. The chances – and they only do like – they'll take blue chip security and that's it. Yeah. Uh, the very – you know, the chances of a, a house in a blue chip suburb in Sydney going down by 40% is very, very low. So the, the – um, you know, those private guys are happy to take that punt. But you're paying, you know – Twice the amount of interest rate that you would pay via normal channel. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool, mate. Well, thanks for um, thanks for I guess educating us on all, all on that. Um, <laughs> the last thing I wanted to touch on, which again is is front of people's mind, and we actually noticed a drop in our leads at the investors agency pretty much identically when this happened. Now that's picked up again because again people realise that the world isn't falling down and and life still continues on. But I want to touch on the the Russia and Ukraine invasion. I know you're not an expert in military, but um, you are an expert in the economy side of things. So I'd love to know your thoughts as to 
how that can how, what, what's been happening and how it can affect sort of the, the markets moving forward or the economy moving forward yeah this is this is really interesting and I, I it's obviously a very sensitive topic so I'll, I will choose my, my my words carefully obviously the the economic repercussions to Russia and Ukraine are huge all right and we're we're over here we're on the other side of the world we did see and I feel sorry for everyone involved in that stuff I tell you it was a horrible thing but when you, you you look at the economic repercussions, the first thing that happened was basically the cost of energy, right? It fed into inflation. That's when you saw the oil at the Bowser go up. A lot of that has actually unwound. It, did, it happened really quickly and sort of unwound really quickly. So it, I don't think it's going to have that much pressure on inflation moving forward. I think that if the, the if the war is contained, uh, it will have little economic impact on the rest of the world. If the war is not contained, then the impacts could be very far reaching and and basically disastrous in wartime. So, you know, picture Australia being invaded, property prices are gonna, they're not gonna be, you, you know what I mean? There's, yeah. there's gonna be some absolute damage there. Yeah. You hope that obviously everyone involved and the powers that be don't turn this into into World War Three. Yeah. If it, yeah, as I said, if it's contained, I think that it will, will have a little bit of pressure on inflation, but not a lot. But if it does escalate and a country like China gets involved, that's our neighbour, then you might see, especially in the consumer sentiment that drives a lot of economic activity, yep. that consumer sentiment will go straight down yep. and it, it'll probably be a tough couple of years. Monetary policy can't fix that. Do you know what I mean? You can't flood the market with money in a wartime and think that that's going to keep things moving along because there's more serious things happening. Yeah, You know, but if things like that happen, you you have to retain your long term view because if you look at look at America over the past hundred years, the, the world wars that have happened, the amount of things that have happened to a country like that, or even like Australia, we've been involved in lots of wars over the past hundred years. Look at the amount of wealth that has been created and the amount of economic prosperity that we've had. So even though you've had these really really bad things that have happening that are real damaging for an economy, over time human spirit will prevail and things will get better and better, yeah. but you just need to survive the hard times that are associated with war. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing, right? It's 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 not necessarily – it's just being able to hold on during those times. So whether it's, whether it's six months, one year, two years, whenever there's a downturn, war is completely different. Obviously, I haven't been sort of – I haven't experienced it, but I can only imagine. Uh, it's just a matter of trying to, trying to hold on because when life does go back to normal, then that's when everything will tick over again. But you just need to hope that as many people can still hold their jobs and keep their jobs and the, and the economy ticks over to some sense of normality and you just keep your head above water until, uh, until yeah, everything goes back to normal. Correct. Correct. And I think that's the only way you can approach it. And, you know, some, some people have, I can't remember who it was, but they said, you know, buy when there's blood on the streets, which is a horrible saying, but I can't remember who, who it was who said it, but it, it goes to show that the, the, the meaning behind that saying is that the asset prices will get smashed in, in horrible times, yeah. but they will recover as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Look, let's hope. Uh, I mean, I haven't really been. I haven't been following it to be honest. I haven't. We've moved into a new place like six weeks ago, and I haven't connected the TV since we moved in. So, <laughs> I haven't watched. Haven't watched the news in six weeks. Um, I try to get off social media as much as I can as well. So, I haven't been keeping my finger on the pulse in that regards. But, but I sort of like to think that while it, it's 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 so unfortunate what's going on at the moment over there, I feel like if it was going to, and I could be completely wrong in saying this, but I'm sort of hoping that if it was going to escalate, it potentially may have already mm. uh, but another side of that is the um the sanctions that get put on russia might get so tight where they're not going to have a choice and 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 
sort of take it to that next level, which which sort of we all obviously hope it doesn't get there. Absolutely, mate, hundred percent. All right. Well, thanks for um being a great chat. Thanks for jumping Thank on, you, Sam. Mate. It was uh it was super exciting. I learned a lot. I was asking all the questions I wanted to know about. So hopefully, <laughs> uh, hopefully the uh, the listeners learned a lot as well. And and look, we'll definitely get you back on um a, a lot more than just this once. So every time there is sort of uh, big changes in in monetary policy or finance or whatnot, we'd love to get you on, get your thoughts. For any of the listeners that want to reach out, how can they get in touch with you? Hit me up on your face, favorite social media, guys. Sam Sam Panetta, chuck it in. Whatever is the most convenient for me. I'm I'm everywhere. I'm all over the internet. He's and, a mogul. Uh, he's I'm I'm, I'm a mogul. What's a mogul? <laughs> a media mogul. I'm a media mogul. I'm, I'm not quite. Um, <laughs> but hit me up. Hit me up on your favorite social media. Happy to happy to have a chat. Thanks a lot, Sam. Lovely to chat. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks for listening to the Lazy Equity Podcast. The advice given on this podcast is of a general nature only, and you should make your own decisions before taking any financial risks. If you would like to stay in touch with the show, join the Lazy Equity Facebook group or find the Investors Agency on Instagram and Facebook.